Hey everybody and welcome to CEO Sit Downs where I, John Cannell, your host, have sit down conversations with CEOs from all walks and all industries to hear their stories, pick their brains, and learn from their experience. On today's show, I'm happy to welcome Brent Comstock. Brent is the founder, owner, and CEO of BCom Solutions. From fundraising and advertising to social media and web development, BCom helps companies, campaigns, and organizations reach audiences nationwide. This conversation was really a special one for me, as both Brent and I are sons of Southeast Nebraska. Moreover, I've been observing Brent's company for several years now, and it's been great to see such success call Small Town Nebraska its home. There's plenty more I could say here, but in short, this is an episode you won't want to miss. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Brent Comstock. Good morning, Brent, and welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. To kick things off today, Brent, I would like you to tell all the folks listening what exactly your company does and kind of give us the background of how you got to where you are. I know it's a great story and I'm sure folks would love to hear it. Sure, John. Well, my, like John said, my name is Brent Comstock. I'm the CEO at Becom. Um, we're, a, we're a digital agency at our core, and I think that can mean a, a ton of different things um, to a variety of people. We focus mostly in the advertising and digital communication space, whether it's um, social media advertising, um, digital advertising outside of social media. So everything from streaming applications to YouTube ads to um, almost TV ads now with Hulu and, and the emergence of Roku TV and, and other things what we call connected TV. Um, and then we do a large uh, amount of work in the de- uh, design space as well as digital fundraising. So um, leveraging the online tools that exist for marketers and for businesses to market, partnering with nonprofits and with um, political candidates and advocacy organizations to help them raise money online. Um, so that's kind of what we do. Um, we, we're headquartered in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, with an office as well in Auburn, um, Nebraska, where I grew up. And then uh, we have a, a pretty uh, diverse remote team, um, geographically speaking, um, from people in California to people uh, in New York. So we kind of cross the across the country from that perspective. Um, the country, the company is the country, the country's 10 years old. Um, the company is uh, in January just coming up will be 10 years old. Um, officially, um, I've been doing this for a little bit longer. But regardless, the 10 year anniversary mark is something that we're both excited about what we've done. But more importantly, we're excited about kind of where we're going. So um, that's a, a little bit about what we do. Sure. Now, you alluded, Brent, that you had kind of started things before the company was officially started. Tell me more about that. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah. So I grew up in rural Nebraska. Um, I don't know the the viewer and listenership of the podcast, but for those of you that know Nebraska, I grew up in, in Auburn and in southeast Nebraska, as I mentioned, uh, and you know participated in all the things as as most people in rural communities do sports and and business organizations and clubs and and music organizations um, and at the end of the day after all of those things I was still kind of like 
okay, well, now what do I do? What do I consume my free time with? Um, and that having that free time was kind of foreign to people. Um, and so um, I, I started um, helping businesses and, and, and frankly, individuals um, understand how to use this thing called technology. And, you know, in 2000, it's weird to think about, but in, in 2000, eight, nine, 10, 11, um, really until 2013 or 14, like things like Amazon Prime were not services that were, were available readily to at least Southeast Nebraska where I was growing up. So this idea that, um, you know, you could have next day services just like someone else in a city would, those things didn't exist. And so um, I things like marketing and advertising for businesses um, weren't, now I'm really proud of both the work that we've done, but just how the industry's evolved. You know, now it's a, it's a kind of like a well, well, duh, we have to have a website. But 12, 13 years ago, when I was you know doing this as a side hobby, I was doing this as a side hobby because it was so annoying to me that you know there were there was one organization in town when we started our company that had a website. And this is a town of thirty five hundred people. Now, I mean. There are plenty. And while we've made a majority of them um, for people, people are making them on their own. There are people that are that are doing it as freelance and people say like, oh, doesn't that bother you that, you know, more people are doing this? I say, no, I love it because it's it's validated the market. It's a lot easier to compete with with someone else um, from a business perspective than to compete with nothing. Um, because you can't, you can't change nothing. It's like, if they've, they haven't done, you know, what you're providing ever before, then you've got to convince them on the premise of it before you even convince them on using you as a company. So, um, that's where we started, um, 10 years ago, um, in January is when we officially started the business. Um, and then we've been growing ever since we've maintained, um, our two official offices. Um, and as we look into the new year, we're, um, we're considering a ton of different growth strategies, um, be it through, um, you know, adding people and clients through acquisitions, through um, a variety of things. We're just kind of sitting back and saying, OK, what what did the last 10 years look like and um, what do we want the next 10 years to look like? So, Brent, in those early days when you were just, you know, doing this as a hobby, as a freelancer, if you will, were you focusing more just on the tech side of things or did you have that uh, niche for the, the graphic design, the marketing aspect? Where, where were your strengths at and all that? Well, having a team and a staff now, they'll tell you that my strength is probably sales and signing people up for, to do things um, without asking them. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, when we started, it, it was tech focused, um, sure. but tech in, in that and even today, like I would say, um, I have relatives who, who couldn't tell you the difference between what we ha- did in the beginning. And they would say, oh, he fixes computers. And we no longer do that, um, mostly because a, com- a computer has become a, a next day shipping item. Your computer breaks unless you've bought like a, a $3,000 computer. Your options are mm, think about fixing it, mm, throw it against the wall mm, or get a new one. And most people get a new one and, and businesses do that too, um, because they've become almost, it's like a commodity marketplace now. It's no longer like you're buying this as a long-term investment. Um, but we were, we were more focused on tech, um, and we were forced to think more about, um, 
outside of tech, which is how we've evolved into this digital advertising and, and communications agency. When I went to college um, and I, I left Nebraska um, and went to school on the East Coast. And, um, you know, when I did that, uh, it you know, there were things that walking down the street to fix someone's router became a lot harder when you live 1200 miles away. And so as and these are all things that in retrospect, we, you know, there was a couple of us working on this, um, wonderful people, um, but we didn't, you know, none of us had built a company before. And so we were, as I like to say in the office, we were giving it a whirl and uh, we were just, we were just throwing things on the wall to see what would work. And um, to both my pleasure and chagrin long-term, um, the business should have died multiple times. Um, there were many times, many pivot points where we were doing things that we didn't know what we were doing to all of our current customers. We have solidified that problem. Um, and so that's, that's a long time ago problem, but, um, yeah, it, it um, evolved from tech, um, and then almost by force into the work that we do now, which is, you know, it's baffling to think that a company that started less than 10 years ago in Auburn, Nebraska, is advising, strategizing and building creative media plans for everything from campaigns for president of the United States to local nonprofits. And for the most part, you know, we've outgrown our our. Um, some of our, our clients and partners, and, and um, I think that's natural, but for the most part, um, you know, I have a meeting later today with one of our very first clients um, uh, back in Auburn, and they've been with us this whole journey, and we're having a conversation about how do we keep working together, and they want to keep working with us, and so um, I think that's a testament to, to the longevity of the business. That's amazing, but tell me, so you went off to college, and that's when you kind of had this... Uh this this shift in what you focused on was there ever an epiphany moment where it occurred to you we have to start you know moving on to different aspects of the you know digital world or was it kind of just a natural flow that you saw where this was going and just had to move there was definitely not um not an epiphany moment i would love there to have been and i wish it would have been something like hello Brent, this is a higher power and here is your epiphany moment. Please listen. Thank you. Um, no, I think the the biggest, honestly, the biggest um, <clears throat> shift for me um, while I was away, you know, I was running the company full time. And when it became time to think about, do I come back um, or do I, you know, do I stay somewhere else? Um, I was doing a variety of things. I, I had landed a gig, um, a gig and landed a full-time job while running the company for the first two years out of college, um, working, um, for a mentor of mine, um, doing venture capital and, and private philanthropy. Um, a, a man who grew up in, in South central Nebraska, um, went away, had a great career, um, kind of picked me up along the way, um, and was supportive of the work that we did. And so uh, all of those things to say, like opportunities were not um, limited. And so um, I think the challenge was, um, and until honestly, a couple of years ago, it was really hard to figure out like, what's the path um, that we're on when you can be on so many different paths. Um, but I wanted to come back after, you know, I've been back now for five years um, going on, on six and I wanted to come back, um, for a few years. I committed in my head and to our leadership team at the time to five years. And, um, 
And I said, I want to see what we can do with this because when I moved from North Carolina and, and, you know, the research triangle area, um, and UNC Duke, Chapel Hill, Wake Forest, NC State, all of those schools. And the, and then there's a huge tech hub there, um, to be in the tech space and then to, to go back to Nebraska, which has, has done a really great job in, in many ways. I think there's a long ways to go and we can talk about that. Um, in, in being, not only business friendly, but but new business friendly, um, and and particularly what I would call at the risk of inserting uh, what could be perceived as a political word, a progressive business. Um, you know, we are in tech and in marketing, and so um, outside of the political ideology world, if you don't, if you can't exist in this world and not think, how do we progress over time? And so. Um, coming back, I was like, let's give it five years and let's see what happens. And, and thankfully, um, our company has grown. We've worked on both coasts. We've worked in the Midwest. We've hired people on both coasts. We have won awards by local publications. We've won awards by national and international publications. And I think that's a testament to the fact that one, our team is, is really awesome. And two, um, um, location um, and zip code don't have to, they certainly do in many cases, but they don't have to define um, the, the outcome of a business. So no, there was no epiphany moment. There were a lot of other things along the way. There you go. There's your five minute answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've never built a company before this, Brent. How did you go about finding the right people for the right jobs? How was your hiring process like? Because to <laughs> me, to me, that'd be very intimidating to a degree to have to do that you know, while having all your other irons and other fires and things? Well, but one by trial and, and error and mostly, mostly error in the beginning. Um, look, running a company is hard. Um, and, and I, and I think I, I could write a, a book about a lot of things. I won't. Um, but this, I have too short of a attention span, but, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard. And, um, it's hard for a lot of reasons. One, I don't think there's anyone who inherently wants to disappoint or be mean to people. Um, and perception is hard to control when you're running a business because you you have to think about the people as people that support the business interest. And you have to think about the business and what people are needed to support that business interest. And I think, you know, I, I've talked about this with friends and with a, a peer group of CEOs that, that I meet with regularly. Um, I've talked about this with, with a therapist before, you know, the, the challenge of being the owner and the CEO um, it, is a really interesting balance because in, in many companies where there are multiple investors or there it's a bigger company or, you know, something like that. In many cases, the ownership is divested into a group of investors or, you know, and so the CEO really is the champion for the, the ambassador between the board and of the investors and the employees. In our particular case where, where I am the owner of the company and the CEO, um, there's a constant push and pull um, between what what's best for the bottom line um, and and then 
you know, that benefits me, obviously, um, but also what's best for the longevity of the company. And so when you're hiring people as the owner, you think, okay, find the best person at the lowest price because, you know, the more you spend, the less you're going to make, right? Um, that, and that's a philosophy that, that we've used for a long time. We stopped doing that probably about mm, three, four years ago um, and have really adopted a much more rigorous hiring process. Um, we've adopted um, what I would call an emerging equitable pay scale. Um, we pay our interns, we pay our team. Um, I know that this is a point of contention and, and I'll just share it because I think that it is important. Like we have started to adopt a transparent um, hiring and salary process where we provide salary bands to people um, that are applying for jobs. And I know that there are a lot of people in most jobs will say salary commensurate with experience. And it's really hard. Um, and it's great for, for someone, you know, who's on the hiring end because then you can wait until you see who you get to make the decision. But there is research and there's so much information that shows that, that one, that that's, um, challenging and it puts bias against the people that are making the decision and it makes it hard to hire someone from a from a, a um, non-judgmental and an equitable standpoint equitable for all of the reasons that you could think of being experience being diversity being gender um, and so the, the that's a an intricate way to answer your question say hiring is hard um, we've taken steps to make and to, to kind of follow trends that I would say are more, um, more akin to um, companies that are larger than us by, you know, thinking about these HR policies, more akin to companies that maybe are progressive than the geographic area that we're in. Um, and we do that because we want people to succeed. And our company, and I think that's the, the end goal, you know, I could talk about hiring and firing failures and successes. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now. Um, I'm now at a point where, you know, I have a leadership team that reports to me and I get in the weeds on a bunch of other things. But in theory, I have a leadership team that reports to me and then the rest of the, the folks, um, you know, have, have other managers and so forth. And I think, you know, what we know is we believe in the work that we do. We believe in our clients and we want people that believe in that along the way. And sometimes people aren't on board with that. Some people, they are, sometimes they are on board with it. We added, I don't know if it's ever been read, but we added to our employee handbook um, about um, a couple years ago, a, a section um, on how to quit. Um, and because as you've mentioned, we've, this is the first time, you know, job for many of us, but we've been doing it for 10 years. Um, and what we've seen along the way is, you know, you hire young people right out of school that are really eager and excited. As soon as they become not eager, it's like, oh, bye, see you later. And, you know, and so, and that's a, that's a generational thing. And it's on the opposite side of that, because I fit and you, John, probably fit more into that age range. On the opposite side of it, it's like, you know, I was part of a board where we had a going away party for the executive director who had been there for 30 years. We had a going away party for them for, a, I swear, for 18 months. And I'm like, go, you, you know, goodbye, thank you, great work, great work, time to go. Um, and so we put, you know, every company is different. In our case, it's like, okay, 
again, we care about the work, we care about our clients, we care about the people. So when those things don't line up, and I had a, a friend and mentor who, who just passed earlier this year, um, uh, who was our first senior intern, so senior being like 80 plus, um, who has a, a list of rules of life. And, and I, um, you know, I, I have kept them close, particularly in the last few months. But one of them is when an individual wants to leave an organization, wish them well and send them on their way. And I think there's nothing more true than that, because um, as soon as you spend time thinking about what could be, what could have been, could I motivate them? Like if all of those things are possibilities, they'll work with you or you'll identify that you need to work with them. If those things aren't a possibility and they indicate that they want to leave, then it's time for them to leave. And so those are just it's a, a very few um, subsets of things that we've learned. And I guess it's a very long-winded way to say like, it's not perfect. Um, I have certainly made mistakes. Um, and you know, I think I've, I have spent a lot of time dwelling on them. And, and, um, what I've recognized though, is that balance between CEO, excuse me, and owner, um, and that all day I'm trying to balance, you know, how do we do the best, um, work for our clients and for our team. And I, I hope that our team and our clients see that because, um, I know a lot of my peers in the CEO world that aren't owners that are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take three weeks off. And I'm like, I I failed to take three hours off a couple of weeks ago on, on a vacation where I worked most of the time. So I cannot relate to that. But um, that's, you know, that's at least what, what I've seen from the hiring perspective of how do you build that and grow that and build a management team and a leadership team. Men, is it time to stop mindlessly scrolling? time to finally gain that higher quality of life you know you're missing out on? If this sounds familiar, then on January 9th, join thousands of men from all over the world to embark on a 90-day journey together in search of a better life. It's called Exodus 90, and it's built to help men enjoy the freedom of becoming who they were truly made to be. Exodus 90 guides you in removing the attachments that are holding you back from a better life, and it actually works. Independent research shows that Exodus 90 men report considerable shifts after the first 90 days, including stronger satisfaction rates in their marriages, more meaningful prayer lives, and a dramatic decrease in the time spent on their phones. For the past seven years, Exodus has helped more than 60,000 men build a roadmap for living with virtue in a culture that offers far too many paths to self-destruction. I'm one of those men, and I can tell you from my own experience, it works. It all kicks off on January 9th. To find more resources to prepare for Exodus, go to exodus90.com, exodus90.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. Brent, would you describe yourself as a workaholic or you just enjoy what you do so much? Where do you fall? You know, it, I, I feel like that has a negative context. Mm-hmm. Um I certainly work more than more than uh, uh, 40 hours a week. I try to keep it under 80. Um, but for me, you know, I, I, I am not married and I don't have kids. And so and while that's something that, you know, is is on my on my to do list for later on in life, um, you know, I am really passionate about the work that we do. And so um, even the hard things like 
you know, negotiating contract terminations with clients or because those things happen. You can't keep all of them. Um, sometimes you're doing the terminating. Sometimes they're doing the terminating. Um, things like, um, um, you know, helping a, a teammate through uh, something hard or, you know, the COVID and, and the pandemic, particularly the remote team, particularly the team that's always on a screen, um, it's really messed with people's mental health. And I, and I don't think people, they don't, it's it, particularly in the Midwest and rural, we have a lot of pride. We don't like to talk about these things. We see a lot of those things as, as, oh, if you need help, then that's a weakness. And I'm here to say like, kick that to the curb because, you know, all of those things um, are difficult. Coaching a teammate through that, coaching a teammate through that by leading by example, by disconnecting and unplugging is hard for me. Um, but it's something that, you know, we try and do. And, um, I think all to say, like, I work the volume that I do um, because I, I want to. Um, I think the hard part and what we try and distill for our teammates that aren't the owners of the company is um, how do you overperform and, and be all in during the workday and so focused on the client work so that you can be just as focused and all in on your personal life outside of, of work, whether that's, you know, some people work nine to five central time. Some people work, you know, eight to four Eastern time. Some people work, you know, a little here, a little there. Some people are part-time. Most of our team is full-time. Some people take Fridays off and work remotely. Like all of those flexible things we want to provide people so that when they are doing the work for our team and for our clients, that um, they're all in. So we're not in the easiest of economic climates, Brent. A lot of folks are forecasting a recession here in the coming year. What challenges, what uh roadblocks has become seen in that regard oh that's it well it, yeah i i think the the I, I will say two things about a recession i'm not an economist but i did study um a lot of geopolitical things by virtue of being involved in political stuff religion stu religious studies in college and business so you smash all those together and you get like some mediocre CEO of become, I guess, or a washed up church treasure, I guess it could become. Um, but, um, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One, um, recessions and economic booms, busts, um, bubbles, um, are, uh, th these are just like you look at the markets over the last 40 years. Um, there are things, and, and obviously it's become a incredibly divisive political um, topic as well. Um, and, you know, I think people that are listening and, and people that explore my background can kind of um, um, calculate my political persuasions. Um, but, you know, what I'll say is uh, what we've always done when we started this company, we were, you know, in our teens, um, we didn't know how to forecast economic trends. What we did know, though, was that businesses and companies in our industry, um, in the agency world, um, had trends and standards um, and metrics for building a healthy, prosperous business. Um, you know, fifty percent of your your um, your revenue should be focused on payroll. Thirty percent should be focused on operating costs. Twenty percent profit margin. Okay economic boom, that 20% looks pretty nice. Um, recession, all right, ownership and the owners and the investors of the company, i.e. me, are going to take a hit on that 20%. Um, 
And, and so I think building a sound and stable business is, is really important, um, to do that. Um, and I think that, that I'm not someone who says, um, a recession is good or bad or an economic boom or best is good or bad, not because I'm ever going to run for political office, but we've worked with a lot of people who have, and I know the people out there that are going to find this interview and <laughs> clip it down and be like, look, he said that. Um, and then they'll use it against me for something. But you know, what I, what I do think though, is I think the government and the, um, the world has pumped a ton of money, um, into, helping people survive. Um, and I think we forget that. And I, I, you know, as someone who's an advocate for public health and an advocate for just like, I would want someone to listen to me for marketing and advertising advice. I would want someone to listen to physicians for medical advice. Um, I think we've pumped a ton of money into the economy. And so, I, I, you know, the question that I asked was like, well, what did you expect? I mean, this money, you know, came out uh, out of nowhere um, so that people could live. Um, and so I think when, when we think about um, how we come out of a pandemic and a, a kind of a, that global recession um, aspect, I think the businesses that have followed good financial procedures will be fine. And you know, I think if some of them consolidate, close, get acquired, um, that's almost always the period that follows a recession has almost always been a period of, of really great ingenuity and innovation. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm in it for the long haul. Sure. Now, Brent, you said you'd never run for political office. No. But I've got to ask, when you work with all these political candidates and things, is are there particular traits, particular um, aspects that are just common throughout all the successful ones? What, what does it take in your mind to be successful in the political realm from like a character personality perspective and outside well, of that too, if you will? Yeah, from a – yeah. <laughs> um, it's a loaded question. Um, well, I, I think there's a couple of things. One – um, from the character and personality trait, like these people are people and they're doing this for a job. Uh, you know, I think, and it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, I have a friend who's a PA, a production assistant, um, in Hollywood. And so for, for them, um, you know, seeing, um, you know, Tom Cruise or, you know, seeing Meryl Streep or, you know, whoever they're working with, um, it, it's work, right? For me, um, you know, one, we, we work in a couple of different customer segments pretty heavily. We do a lot of work in um, rural campaigns, causes and advocacy um, on, on the non-political side, if, if there is such a thing as non-political, working with rural healthcare, working with nonprofits, um, working with um, schools and education groups. And then we, we do a fair amount of work on the digital front, digital fundraising and advertising in the political space. And Obviously, um, over the last, you know, five, six, seven years, that's become um, an increasingly partisan space. And our company on that particular side has has had to make a decision to focus on on moderate and left leaning races, not on the other side. Um, And that was both the industry demanding that, um, frankly, um, and people just being unwilling to to work on 
other sides of the aisle. Um, but in each of the candidates, we've worked with Republicans, we've worked with Democrats, we've worked with more Democrats than we've worked with Republicans. Um, but our corporate clients largely represent um, a more conservative base. And so what I'll say, this is a, someone's job. And I think, um, so when you think about that and you pull out the star power and the negative ads and you pull out the the fact that, you know, these people, um, you know, in many cases, depending on where they are in elected office, you know, once you get to kind of the the statewide or federal level or in a large city at the municipal level, you can't go out to eat without someone talking about, um, you know, you and, and an assumption about, you know, do you eat a salad with chicken or do you eat it with salmon? Um and so what I'll say is, is we are looking and when we're working with candidates and you know, sometimes, yes, we get to pick the candidates, but at the end of the day, like just like in business, I'm sure that you have worked with a client where you're like, okay, I'm working with this client so that I can get to this client, even though you don't really like that client or that, you know, you don't align. It's no different in, in our industry. I think the difference is like the political world, we have a 24 hour news cycle. Um, when a crisis happens, um, people are, I feel like in the like ever consumed vacuum of the Twitter world and social media, like they're more concerned about the response time of the politician on the crisis than they are about the crisis themselves. And as the people who draft and create the responses, it's like, okay, give us a break people. Um, but I still look for, that's a great tee up to your question of, I look for people that, that care about the work that they do. Um, that genuinely want to help people. Um, uh, we, we worked in a, in a congressional race a couple of, of cycles ago, and I won't give specifics. Um, person ended up losing, but, um, you know, I will never forget. We, our team, our company is made up of people of all political stripes. Um, the people that are working on the more political work are generally more politically aligned with the work that they're doing. But, um, you know, we worked on a, on a campaign uh, a couple of cycles ago where um, even the people that didn't politically agree with um, the, the party and the premise of a candidate that we were working with, they really were excited about her campaign and about her. And it was because she cared. And, you know, you get down to these, these um, you know, really interesting races and I look for candidates who care um, because in order to sign yourself up for the scrutiny of public office, you have to care in order to um, want to put yourself out, you know, to be vilified by whatever your opposing side is, you have to care. Um, And so that's one thing. And then the second thing is I love people that that um, can understand that the game and the strategy of getting elected to office is a strategy. Um, I won't go so far as to say it's a business to run a um, a campaign, but it is. Um, you know, it's it's a startup. You have eighteen months to bring on a staff, raise money, capital. Um, communicate a message and convince people to buy your product, the product being you. Um, And so, um, and I think that you can see over the course of the last six, seven years, um, how easy that is to do in the traditional sense and how easy it is to do in in a non-traditional sense. Um, And, you know, I think I look to 
I look to people where it's an unlikely of pairings where you can see how that caring and how a good message can work outside of the party politics. Like Laura Kelly in Kansas, governor of Kansas, just reelected um, to to um, to the governorship. Um, if I told you um, to describe the governor of Kansas, you would probably say, stereotypically speaking, you would probably say it's probably a conservative white man. Um, Laura Kelly is uh, a former Republican turned Democrat, but total centrist governor who cares. Um, and in a political climate where, you know, I don't know, figure out what Trump won Kansas by, I guarantee it's double digits. Um, Laura Kelly gets reelected and people, a lot of people in the industry ask me like, okay, how do those things happen? I'm like good ground game, good strategy. And because she cares. And I think that that's really important. And, and, um, while I don't think that every race, you know, you can build off of centrist politics, um, you know, I wish maybe that that were the case sometimes. But like, I think it's fair to say that if you live in New York, you should probably have a representative that if you live in a progressive district, you should probably have a progressive representative. Um, but I think when you see these flips left to right or right to left, um, oftentimes you'll find people that care and that can run a really good strategy and a really good ground game, just like a business. And it's no different than if you had two startups that were doing the same thing and one of them got venture backed faster and had better investors and went to market sooner. Um, it's the same thing in the political space. So do you enjoy that strategizing aspect of it all? Oh yeah. That's the, I mean, it can, it can, it consumes everything, right? Like it's, it's just a huge time suck, but, um, yeah, because because then when you see someone get elected and, and you know, I think people that from the outside looking in, like they're like, oh, well, you know, do you have more losses than wins or wins and losses type of thing? And like unless you you like get really lucky, um, I don't know. I don't know many top um, strategists on any in any political party Um that haven't been dealt a series of blows before they reach the top, you know? And so, but once that person gets elected or once, um, you know, we do a lot of work in independent expenditures, which um, is fancy words for like PACs and super PACs. Um, and, you know, we can go into to what, what that is. Um, but, you know, even like, you know, if we if we run a an ad that supports um, veterans supporting a candidate through an independent expenditure project, right? Like a group of veterans raises money and wants to run ads only supporting veterans, so they hire a firm to build ads, blah blah, blah those types of things. Um, but when someone wins and you see the the kind of fruits of your labor pay off, or um, you know, you see five years down the line when someone passes a bill. Um, that they introduced, that you helped them campaign on um, five years earlier, then not only do you feel like, okay, we did a really cool ad that got this person elected, but we did a really cool ad that got this person elected. And um, in the process, um, we get to see the work that's being done. And I, I think that one of the best examples here locally to take out of like left versus right and all that stuff, we ran the campaign for in 2020, the election was February 2020, 
excellent timing um, and uh, got that done r- right in the nick of COVID time. Um, but we ran the school bond um, campaign here in Lincoln. It was a $290 million bond that did not raise the tax levy. Now, naysayers, and, you know, we were the messaging strategists. We had to come up like, well, my taxes are still going up. Well, yes, they are, but that's not because of the, the public school tax levy. They're, you know, look at your taxes. Um, but what was cool about that, we won the campaign, overwhelming majority, I think close to 70% um, win um, in Lincoln. So bipartisan, we had 100 plus people, um, Dems, Republicans, nonpartisans, teachers, business people as part of this campaign. Um, And the objective was to pass a bond um, that would allow Lincoln Public Schools to build two new high schools and a series of other things, athletic complexes and things like that, for a, a district and a school system that was physically outgrowing its space. Like there was no more room. Um, you could show what the schools that were built in the last bond, the capacity for them was, and you could show where their capacity was now. And the answer is like, they've run out of room and it passed. Um, and now they're building those schools. Those schools are now open. Um, you know, at least one or two of them are, I've been traveling too much this year to know exactly where all those are, but to be able to drive by something and know if I'm a strategist or if I write content at become, do you know that the emails and the, the ads and the scripts um, that I, um, I wrote are helping build uh, a school to know if I'm a videographer or a creative a member of our creative team, that the brand and the imagery and the design that compelled people to support this built that school. Um, sure, there's a lot of other things that go into it, mostly voters, tax money, um, so forth. But I think that sort of compelling mission-driven work, um, not everyone can say that they get to do. Um, and, and we saw that early on at become when we were able to help everyone from a local church or a local business build a website so that they could stream or share content with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, customers or family members far away, all the way down to the 85 year old, um, women that we helped like get set up on Facebook, um, to now like we are running you know, a bond campaign for a $290 million effort. And like, we're in the driver's seat. Um, though all of those things combined, um, you know, I think it's pretty special to be able to say that and to be able to do that. And that's why I love the strategy aspect of it, because whether it's elected officials, whether it's passing ballot initiatives or levies or things like that, like it, it's nitty gritty, but that affects a lot of people's lives in the long run. Just think about the number. I know you're a, a musician. Just think about the number of, of students who will go through um, those schools that both include, you know, state-of-the-art performing arts facilities that previously were crammed into like a gymnatorium because they were at capacity. And if performing arts is their, is their forte, uh, not to, to use puns, but, um, then, then they get a, a shot at, at something better and greater. If I'm in, in sports, like Lincoln, surprisingly, and I don't know the number and I should, cause we talked about this at nauseating levels for six months during the campaign, but like, Lincoln doesn't didn't have that many um, public school owned, you know, city owned um, sports facilities, practice facilities, um, you know, relative to the number of teams. Like not every high school 
had a, a field affixed to it. Um, and so, you know, there were teams that were practicing and meeting um, at um, every day, night and hour, not because it was conducive for their learning schedule or for them as, as student athletes, student athletes, but because um, that was the only time slot that was available. Now they get a fair shot. Um, and we have done work in everywhere from, you know, the depths of the southeast in the gnat belt of Georgia. Yes, bugs, gnats, um, to, um, to California politics, to right here in Nebraska. And I think those are the, the things and why the strategy is so compelling. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick minute here to remind you that if you know any CEOs who would make great guests on my show, send me an email at john at ceositdowns.com. I am always on the hunt for great guests, so if you know anyone, please send them my way. I'd love to have them on. Again, you can reach me at john at ceositdowns.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. Now tell me though, Brent, you had the opportunity to not meet just one president of the United States, but two, President Biden and President Obama, um, yeah. T- tell me how that transpired. I don't think many folks can say that they've met a president of the United States. Yeah. Well, again, they're people. Um, so um, I think that's, you know, it, it is an honor, though. I mean, I, we've met a lot of people and, and had an opportunity, you know, in the 2020 cycle to meet a lot of candidates, too. Um, and I met um, President Obama twice, actually. Um, once when I was in high school participating in a, um, in a student program. And then um, again, later, um, near the end of his, his second term. So I think the first time was in the beginning of his first term. Um, and then near the end of his, his second term. Um, and I did um, meet um, President Biden as well when when he was not yet um, president but was was running, um, and you know here's what I'll say, um, and and I, I think it's it's unfortunate because you know it, it's like if you want a good punchline like show up to a family gathering like what did you do this this you know year oh I made all of the ads um, that you like you know posted <laughs> how much you hated them and how um, horrible these people are and you know drain the swamp and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, it's clear, um, you know, that, that I tend to lean, um, what I would call center left, um, on a lot of things on, on, uh, and, you know, this isn't a political podcast or a debate, but what I will say is in meeting those people, you're reminded of the importance and the difference of them, right? Like they're, they, they work together for eight years. They, they, um, are of the same political party. In many cases, the outside public would think, you know, they're, they're the same, basically the same person, except he's older. Um, but, but they are different, um, and they're different people. And, and I, as much as I, I, did not enjoy, and I think this is clear, and this is my personal opinion, did not enjoy the the, the pleasantries of the president in between them. Um, you know, I, I respected the, the fact that, you know, that's the awe-inspiring power of democracy. Now, I, I say that going up until about January 5th of 2021, and then I'm not going to turn your podcast into a, into a political debate. But, but I think 
in meeting those folks and meeting whether in the White House for Obama both times or outside of the the, the White House um, you know, on the campaign trail for President Biden, you're reminded that all of us are um, are term limited. In, in some way or another, right? Like they're term limited in, in their office. Um, we're term limited on this earth. Um, and so you just, you have to pick what you care about. And um, I, and we do this work because I want to make sure that um, people in, in the customers that we serve um, know that we're a company that wants to spend the time that we have here doing the stuff that we care about. And I can say confidently in both of those people, um, whether that whether you agree with them or not, but um, that those people believe that just as well as anyone else. Right. And and the the vilification of all political sides um, has just become something of a of a challenge to overcome. Um, and you know, I've lost friends in the process. I've lost, um, I have not physically lost family members, but you know, I, there are certainly people that are like, Oh, don't invite him to that thing. Um, and so it's just been interesting to meet people, but recognize one, that they're people and, and two people that I think, um, have, have met the moment for when, when they were elected. Um, and I met senators and members of Congress and we have members of Congress that we work with that call me and you know you realize they're they're just people too when they say like you you have a typo in my in my in my facebook post and i'm like crap yeah sure do um like oh yep you're a person as well um so it's just an interesting world and an interesting process to be a part of frankly to bring uh, the conversation back closer to home if you will brent i know you have a passion for rural america rural Nebraska, um, being born and raised there. Um, you, you have the Rural Impact Hub, I know a little bit about, but go ahead and tell the folks about your passion about the Rural Impact Hub, all of that. Yeah. Well, so the Rural Impact Hub is, in its first iteration, was a fancy word for our first office in Auburn. And we created the Rural Impact Hub as a, as a named entity when we, about five, six years ago now, kind of emerged and started to broaden the customer horizon outside of Southeast Nebraska. Um, we have not left Southeast Nebraska. We've not left our clients there. In fact, I think they are benefiting more from our departure or, or, or addition and expansion outside of there because you know, if we hadn't left the geographic proximity of just Southeast Nebraska, we would never have been able to say that we've worked on, you know, nationwide health, public health campaigns or launched presidential races. And whether that relates to them or not, like to be able to know if you're in, in rural Nebraska, that the marketing company that started here, that has employees that live there, um, have worked on on like the highest of high profile things. Um, if we would have just set our sights on you know the proximity, I think we we could have built a great business. Um, but I think it, it would have been limited in scope. And so when we added our Lincoln office, one of the things I committed to our COO at the time and our leadership team was, at least for a while, I want to try and make the Auburn office work. And so I was driving from Auburn to. Carney for speaking at a conference, I think. Um, and I was on the phone with my chief of staff at the time and, and um, 
was talking through like what we could do with the space. And that's when it kind of landed on me. Like I had been whining and complaining and talking about how we needed some sort of creative idea space, but not too confined and too constrained, almost a place where like there are rules that there are no rules um, and um, call it an incubator, call it a co-working space, call it whatever you want. I don't care. Call it the meeting place for, you know, all of the boards that I sit on. Um, anyway, the Rural Impact Hub was born physically as a space. Up until COVID, we did some programming as well. We'd bring in speakers. We'd bring in, you know, we hosted, um, I was in experience, we hosted um, debates for legislative and municipal offices um, in in the space um, you know, which was funny because most of those people weren't political. And that's a great example of the purpose of the rural impact hub, like not politically aligned with me, but we still invited them into the space and we still want to have those conversations. Um, and, you know, we'd host events, we'd host gatherings. There was office space, obviously, because we had moved, um, a fair portion of our team to, um, to Lincoln. Um, but we saw a couple of people there and, most of those people, ironically, during the pandemic have since moved back. Um, and so um, then so the, the Rural Impact Hub was was a, an idea space. And then a couple of years ago, um, we created what is now um, called the Rural Impact Fellows Program. And we're launching the next iteration of that going into the next year. For the first two years, we did a partnership with um, AmeriCorps and Serve Nebraska in an organization called Lead for America um, that was founded by a group of folks, including some people I went to college with. Um, but basically, um, providing fellowships and serviceship opportunities to young people who want to serve rural communities or come back to a rural community um, and serve. And that was something that for me, when I moved back, um, those things didn't exist. And so I immediately picked living in Lincoln and Omaha and or Omaha because I knew I needed access to an airport because we were growing our national client base. But it was also because I thought, well, if I just if I just go home to Auburn, like this thing doesn't exist yet. And and the invitation for young people to come back, I think, is increasing in volume Um and, and I think you're starting to see people want to step up and that's really exciting. And that and the Rural Impact Fellows and and the Rural Impact Hub kind of stands um, stands to exist and, and reason um, on this idea that zip code doesn't really um, have a have a, a, a shouldn't have a grasp, I should say, on what your outlook in life looks like. Um, and we've had people move back. I can confidently say that there is, and I can say this with satisfaction that do, do I think I will ever again live permanently in Auburn, Nebraska? Probably not. Um, and that's not for any ill fate for, for Auburn, um, or for any rural community. I mean, I speak to audiences and, and do a ton of keynote speaking, um, working on, um, talking about how you create these centers of entrepreneurship and innovation in these places. And frankly, one, my schedule just doesn't allow me to not live that far from an airport. Um, so we could pick up Auburn and move it to like, you know, 20 miles north of the Omaha airport. That would be great. Um, then I would. Um, but also, you know, I think there's there's time, just like um, the question about recessions and, and um, economic booms and busts, I think there's, you know, these bell curves around, what's right for the community at the right time. 
And I don't know this. And, and it's, you know, I, I always tell people, a mentor of mine used to say, you can't be a prophet in your own land. Um, and so, and, and I, I think I believe that um, because the more work we did there, the more people I was pissing off. Um, still, work was great and they've, they've retained us. They've hired us again, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but, um, you know, it, it's been fun to see other people do the work that we've talked about, you know, like when, when we went into this and the Rural Impact Fellows and our, you know, currently and, and are in the process of transitioning from calling them um, the Lead for Nebraska Fellows to Rural Impact Fellows because both programs are still going to exist. We're just doing two different tracks, essentially. But those fellows um, have delivered in two, less than two years, have delivered literally millions of dollars in long-term investments into rural communities that otherwise would not have done that. Um, um, And those communities would not have had that. Millions of dollars in broadband expansion funds, um, advocating to bring them to, and, you know, people say, well, you know, the the federal government, you know, dictated that. Well, the federal government, as we've, you know, already talked about budgeting, um, federal government appropriated dollars, but then it was largely up to states to decide what to do with that money. Rural Impact Fellows, while they didn't lobby, because as AmeriCorps fellows, you cannot lobby, but they advocated for their communities to get funding for broadband expansion. You and I both know the importance of broadband in rural communities, probably more so than, than that and then in, in urban communities, because in urban communities, one, you've got a lot of amenities and access to things, and you've probably got good you know, cell coverage and things like that. But for us, for BCOM Solutions, for Brent Comstock, not having access to consistent broadband would have crippled and not made it possible for you and I to talk today. And so to have fellows and young people that have left college and have said, you know, for two years or a year, I'm going to be a fellow I'm going to embody this, you know, spirit of making rural communities better, rural health care, rural economic development, rural community development, rural broadband. And those fellows have delivered millions of dollars in two years. Um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I can get it to you. Um, to, and there's like six of them, five or six of them. There's not that many. Um, we're expanding that, by the way. Um, but... Um, They've done so much good work for their community. And what I know, and this is why the Rural Impact Hubs, if it if it dies tomorrow, which, you know, it's not, it's not the plan. I got other things to do tomorrow. But if it ended at any point in time, I could confidently sit back and say it's accomplished the mission of what it was created in its first iteration to do. And that wouldn't have happened if I didn't grow up in Auburn and if I hadn't decided to leave at the urgency of and motivation of other people leave the state with no plans to come back because I wouldn't have met the people who started the program that we partnered with to start the the rural impact fellows and I wouldn't have had the motivation to come back and if the outcome of the the to weave politics into if the outcome of the 2016 election had panned out how you know the entire world anticipated it would I probably wouldn't have come back because I felt like um I needed to to spend time in what I called the the rural trenches um, to figure out what was the motivation to to pick um, the people that they picked and and you know while I didn't necessarily agree with it like I wanted to come back 
to identify all those things. We created the Rural Impact Fellows Program, the Lead for Nebraska Fellows, now Rural Impact Fellows um, Program, because we wanted there to be more stories like mine, more stories like the people on our team. Um, and we've done that in Nebraska. We've done other programs in, in other states. Um, I've spoken to audiences about and created models like this about how to create these types of innovation circles and thought communities in Alaska, um, in Kansas, in Iowa, Missouri, and in Texas. Um, and so it's been fun to see how our company's success that ultimately has provided both capital and connectivity to fund these efforts, um, while they're not the same, and they're you know if any if anything they're they're you know as both of them grow they kind of verge this way um, apart. Um, I think there's a lot of of great symmetry that exists between why all those things have happened. That's terrific, and as someone who's you know, delivering this podcast from rural America at the moment. I applaud what you're doing. So thank you, Brent. And I also want to thank you because I know we're coming up on time here. Give the folks who are listening, Brent, an idea of where they can learn more about you, about BCOM, about the Rural Impact Hub, all that you're involved with. Yeah. So um, you can learn more about um, BCOM by visiting BCOMonline.com, B-C-O-M-O-N-L-I-N-E.com. Um, and um, you can learn more about the Rural Impact Hub. I was just checking to make sure it wasn't .org at ruralimpacthub.com. Um, and um, so those are the the two easiest places. Um, I'm on social media, but um, like like most most um, Americans and in their 20s, I usually use it when I'm on a rampage about something. So enter at your own risk. Um, but uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. That's the safest place to go. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, and obviously, like I'm, I'm, for those of folks that are in Nebraska or in the Midwest, like if you find yourself in Lincoln or in Auburn, like I'm I'm usually there or in the airport. So if you see someone that looks like the uh, the albino Nebraskan Midwestern guy sitting in the corner yelling on his AirPods at someone on the phone, it's probably me. That's terrific. Well, like I said, Brent, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. We probably could have talked for several hours. There are several other things I wanted to pick your mind about. But, you know, time is a constraint. You're a busy man, got things to do, places to be. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And you have a Merry Christmas. You too. Merry Christmas and take care. You bet. Take care. Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sit Downs on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or a family member who you think would enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I would certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be.